Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and we'll read together verses 4, or rather, 13. So, chapter 13, verses, verse 13, and through verse 43. That's on page 921 of your pew Bibles, if you have them available. I invite you to stand out of the respect for the reading of God's Word. Now there were, or rather, sorry, I keep starting in verse 1, I'm sorry. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pam, in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him and from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. 
Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 1928, a microbiologist named Dr. Alexander Fleming arrived home from holiday vacation. And he looked at his private lab and saw something that just astounded him. The Petri dish that he was using uh, to run experiments on, uh, which formerly was filled with bacteria, was now quite different. A chemical compound that he had created and put within that dish was actually pushing back the bacteria, causing it to recede, killing it. Alexander Fleming looked at this. He was was absolutely astounded. and, And he knew that moment that penicillin, the compound that he had created, would absolutely flip the medical field on its head. Fleming's experiments, what he, what he produced, answered a question that no one before could answer. How do we stop bacterial infection? How do we help broken and, and, uh, and overtaken bodies with medical invention, with medical discovery? And that is what penicillin uh, produced. In fact, today, when we... We take this for granted that there's something that can stop bacterial infection. We take for granted that this was invented, but it's changed our lives. It's changed our society. Now, you know that this sermon isn't about penicillin. You know that this sermon isn't about singing the praises of Alexander Fleming. This sermon is about the Lord Jesus Christ. But why I tell you this, uh, this story at the beginning of the sermon is because the gospel is a historical reality that absolutely flipped the world on its head. And today we take it for granted. We live in the freedom and the blessings uh, that Christ has purchased for us. And there are ways in which we just live out that freedom and, and, and assume and take for granted all that he did. So long ago, thousands of years ago, to purchase salvation for us. There are times, though, friends, where, in fact, I think this is part of what a sermon is meant to do, is to stop you and say, don't take it for granted. Don't just assume. You've got to get back and look at this and see that this was for you. And it changed everything. When, when Paul first preached this message, He was desperate to see it get out. In fact, you'll notice that provided for you in your bulletin is a map. I promised you I'd give you a map because uh, there are places that are named. 
And I don't want you uh, to, to just take my word for it. I want you to see uh, this first missionary journey. And I want you to tuck away this map somewhere in your Bible so that as we, as we see Paul uh, continue his path, we're going to be able to follow him and Barnabas. Uh, well, you'll see last week we saw that he left Antioch in Syria there on the, on the far right part of your map. And he went through uh, Salamis and Paphos and uh, the island of, of Cyprus. And there's where we saw the gospel break through and save Sergius Paulus. And then this week, we hear in the scriptures that he sails north and goes to uh, Perga and, and, and then continues further north all the way to Antioch. I don't want you to be confused when you hear Antioch mentioned because there's two different Antiochs. There's Antioch in, on the east and there's Antioch further west, Antioch in Syria in the east and Antioch of Pisidia um, out west. And what we're going to see is that Paul is going to go uh, through these cities um, in the region that's called Galatia. Um, he's later going to write them the book of Galatians, and he is going to uh, share for them for the first time this gospel. Now, the sa- in the same way that the medical community was probably just ast- absolutely astounded when they heard of Alexander Fleming's um, experiment, uh, in an even greater way, a hundredfold greater way, imagine the people as they heard of salvation in Jesus Christ. For the first time, breaking forth. Paul, you're giving us answers to the questions that we've been wondering about for centuries. We've been wondering how salvation would be possible. We've been wondering who was going to come to save us from our sins. We've been wondering who David's heir would be. You have an answer for us. This changes everything. We're finally free. As the gospel comes once again this morning to you, friends, I want and the prayer of, of, of my heart is that the promise of Jesus would come to you. And you would see in him that you are finally free. Well, let's look at this, first of all, by observing this proclamation that Paul brings to the people in Antioch. Antioch of Pisidia. And the proclamation uh, comes in the context of, of a church service, of, of a synagogue uh, worship. Here they are. They're all sitting and worshiping God. And they have a service that is not completely unlike ours. But one of the unique elements is uh, there comes a point in the service where they invite uh, visitors who might have a word of encouragement uh, to say something and stand up. Now, I wonder if they knew what they were doing when they said, hey, you know, Paul, we hear you're coming to us uh, from Uh, from the east. We hear you're coming to us from Jerusalem and and Antioch. What do you have to say to encourage us, brother? And he stands up (laughs) and doesn't he have something to share? I mean, I don't think they could have possibly anticipated this. Uh, What is the heart of Paul's message to them, to us? If you were to just put it in a nutshell, there's a lot that was shared. What stands out to you? The central proclamation of this message, the main point of Paul's sermon is this, that Jesus Christ is the big focus of history. He's the big focus of history. If you were to map out, and he does, if you map out the history of the Jewish people, you can't miss that God is intentionally caring and deliberately intervening. For them, so that there is this, there is a direction that their history is moving. 
History isn't aimless. It's not just meandering around. God is intervening, and he starts with this small little tribe of, uh, of people descended from Abraham. And then he, he, he causes them to multiply in the land of Egypt. And then he pulls them out of slavery in Egypt. He plants them in a special place. He places a king over them. And all the while, he's promising that peace will prevail in his kingdom through David's royal line. So he takes them from promise to fulfillment, from slavery to freedom. And uh, as we see the Old Testament close, we see it close with this enduring promise. What's that promise? Peace is going to come through David's line. History is not done yet. It doesn't end with a people in a place with a king over them. Because uh, skip forward a thousand years, as Paul does, and what do you see? Jesus steps onto the scene. And in verse 23 of his sermon, we're reminded of this man's offspring, of David's offspring. God has brought a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, there's a lot of stories I, I liked, I, I've heard that I enjoy about kings. I enjoy especially Henry V and hearing of his conquest and hearing how you've got this, uh, you know, this, this kingdom that's waiting for someone to stand up and just lead forward. And uh, you, you think of kingly and royal figures. And recently I, I enjoyed uh, the storyline of Dune and how you have someone step up and, um, and become uh, the long-awaited king to lead the people forward. But in Jesus, you have something that is so much better than all of that. You don't just have the story of some antiquated people and a king who happened to, to, uh, to find his way onto the scene. And do something awesome for, for his people. Instead, what you have is a king who forgives sins. That had to, to make the ears of the first listeners perk up. They said, wait, what? The king, the, the, the king of, uh, that comes from the line of David? He hasn't just come to rule in a special place over a special people, he's come to forgive sins, to deal with the central problem of our hearts. The, the, the very thing that keeps peace at bay from us, our selfishness, our rebellion, Jesus came to deal with that. Yes. So Paul says, he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, And he proclaims to you that he will never again see corruption. He has the power of an indestructible life. And that power of an indestructible life over sin and death is the very thing that makes him fit to be the king, the ultimate king. Not just for you, of course, but for all who would believe in him. From the patriarchs to the prophets, Everything was building up to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And you'll notice that because Paul starts to point to these different um, prophets and their predictions, right? What is he saying when he's, when he's pointing to those predictions? He's saying, Jesus isn't just some rabbit that's pulled out of a hat all of a sudden. Jesus is a great treasure, a great treasure that, that the prophets were pointing to over and over and over again. He can't just show up on the scene and, and, and somehow make this up. It has to be him. Some of you are going back to school this, uh, or you went back to school 
last week or the week before. And maybe you're even starting to learn about history, lean into historical study. History often has a way of being explained in terms that just sound like one uh, kingdom after another. And uh, just this meandering line, and who knows where it's all going. But I want you to see from this passage that, that God always knew where it was going. He always has a name, and it's always Jesus. He's the turning point. He's the answer to the question that was always posed in the past. What were those questions? How can we be saved from our sins? How can we really be at peace? How can we have someone who rules over us, not just for their own selfish gain, but really to give us life? Who's going to do that? Who's going to solve the problem of our selfish hearts? Because every king that we put on the throne fails. Jesus is the big focus of history. There's an important takeaway from this. In Christians, it's simply this. Our faith is not primarily about subjective experiences. Now, I know. One of the great testimonies is, is being able to say to someone, I want you to know what Jesus has done for me in my life. I want you to know what Jesus means to me. And that's a really powerful word, right? That's not something I'm disparaging. But that's not the gospel at its core. The good news is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in real history. It actually happened. No one... Uh, no one's bothered when you speak of, of a Jesus that, that inspires you uh, to be a better person or who, 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 who makes you feel uh, you know, good about yourself or who helps you to recycle on Monday mornings when you're putting out the trash. But people are bothered by a Jesus who came to die for sins because you know what that means? It means that in real history, someone had to die for you being a real history sinner that you actually needed someone to come and confront what is worse about you and deal with, with the rebellion of your own heart. Now, that's a Jesus that offends people, but that's a Jesus that people need. Someone who actually came in history to deal with our actual sins. I wonder if you can explain the gospel like that simply to someone who would ask, are you able to, to, to come alongside someone and, and say, hey, here's the good news in history. And yeah, here's how that changes everything for me as well. Think about that this week. You need, we, we need these reminders, don't we? How can we articulate the gospel? How can we talk about what Jesus did in history to save us from our sins? And so the proclamation, right? A proclamation is a king's herald coming to a people and saying, news from the king. Now, what's the news from the king to Pisidia Antioch and to you here this morning? News from the king in Jesus Christ. All of history has found its focus. All of history has found its turning point. And that turning point is simply this, that there is a savior who can free you finally from the problem of your sin from the problem of your selfishness, from the problem of your rebellion against God and your refusal to live on his terms and your insistence to live on your own. That's good news, isn't it? Why do we need to hear this this morning? Here's where we move from proclamation to application. Why do we need to hear all of this? And you say, 
I've heard this before, Pastor. In fact, this is pretty much what I always hear almost every Sunday in some form or another. Let me tell you why you need to hear this. Because we take it for granted. We say, yeah, I know that. Life, death, burial, resurrection. I know he's the savior. I know he's the king. But the real question is, has this changed you? Has this news changed you? Has it made a difference? Or is it just a fact that you tuck away, like that Alexander Fleming uh, came home from vacation in 1928 and uh, discovered penicillin? Has the gospel changed you? Has it made all the difference in your life? And are you actually aware and laying a hold of the promises that come to you in, in the son of David? I want to point to three things in this passage that Paul does uh, to, to awaken you again to the reality that this gospel is not just a historical fact to tuck away, but it's a historical fact that impacts you today in the year 2023 on August 10th at 1127 a.m. First is this, that the gospel brings you forgiveness, forgiveness. I know, Pastor. I know. I'm forgiven in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to be forgiven? It means that you have a problem with God. It means that the problem is that God has, in his mercy, pointed you, showed you the right way to live. He said, this is the way of eternal life. This is the way of peace. This is the way that leads to understanding. And you've said, at some point or another, all of us have said, yeah, um, no. I want to live on my own terms. I want to define my relationships the way I want to define them. I want to pick and choose what things I like in the Bible. God, I'm king. And this gracious king that we have rebelled against he says that forgiveness is possible. You see, your sins, your rebellion against God stand against you like weights on your back. Pilgrim's Progress, a beautiful illustration in there, isn't there? Christian, I guess before he becomes Christian, I think, I'm trying to remember, he has this weight, this burden on his back. And his burden, the burden is his sins. Weighing him down like weights. Like kids, imagine putting on your back a 1,000 pound weight trying to walk around with it. Heavy, brutal, pulling you down, weighing you down, reminding you. We can try to, uh, to forget about our sins. We can try to push the burden off, but nothing can get rid of it because our sins are against God. No amount of good things we could do, no amount of Random acts of kindness can erase that burden. Only the forgiveness that comes from the Lord. Saying, I know your sins, but you're forgiven. They're gone. The guilt that they bring you, they're, they're gone. I've forgotten them. Don't you need that this morning? Don't you need the voice of forgiveness from God? There's therefore now no condemnation. In Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, 
you, you bring all of history up to the point of Jesus and, and you come to his life, death, burial, resurrection. Why does that matter? It matters because of forgiveness is proclaimed in his name. There's a way back to God. There's a way away from your burden. There's a way to live right again at peace with him. Well, how is that possible? It's not just God saying, yeah, I've decided to forget about it. It's because of what his son did on the cross. Now, I want you to to notice, in fact, it's probably not present in your English Bible um, unless you have a translation that, uh, that, that clearly says that Jesus has brought justification in his name. That's what we see here in verse 38 and 39, that the word that Paul uses here is actually a famous word that he is never going to get tired of. It's the word justification. That we are justified in Jesus's name. What does it mean to be justified? Well, it means uh, not just that God has overlooked sin, but that it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification means. It means that our record is made right with God. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? He took your record upon himself. He took upon himself the death that you deserve to die for your sins. And then what do you receive? Life. Not life that you deserved, but life that comes from the great exchange. Christ giving to you his righteousness, his perfect record. And And you giving to him your flunking record, your your sins, your rebellious life. And Jesus says, I'll take that so that you can take my perfect righteousness. I remember the first time that I think I was in high school. This was when justification really clicked for me. And I had just falsified my parents' signature um, on, on a record. And I don't know why I did it. It was really, it was really silly, um, and I remember that the instructor noticed that I'd done it. It was so obvious, and the instructor walked away saying, "I don't know why you did this, but um, this is going to go on your record. This is going to go on your school record. The the authorities are going to know about this." And I remember thinking in that moment, first of all, there's nothing I could do to get that off my record. Nothing. It, it was just, you know, even today, you could probably find it tucked away in some, some place, some forgotten files. But it was in that moment that I realized that Jesus took my record and he gave me his. That's what justification means. That my flunking, failing record, a record that fail, a life that falls short of the glory of God, Jesus says, I'll take that and I'll die for that. But you take my righteousness. You take my white robes. You take my perfect and spotless record so that God smiles upon you. That's the beauty of the Son of David coming, dying for your sins, forgiving you, justifying you. So that it's just as if you'd never sinned. Don't you need that? You know, you can try to push away from your mind the thought of your need from that. You can say, I, I, I've been a pretty good person. I've tried. I think, I, I think I've overcome that. But nothing can scrub away your rebellion against God. But Jesus can take. Jesus took that. He died on the cross for that. 
And his perfect record can be yours if you believe and trust in him. What does this all mean? The final thing I want you to see, the final blessing that Jesus extends to us is that he forgives us, he justifies us, and he declares that we are free. Now look at verse 39. Verse 39 says this, that in Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now I want you to think about this. What can the law of Moses do? And let's, let's, let's kind of summarize the law of Moses. Let's first look at it from the perspective of the Ten Commandments, right? What can the Ten Commandments do? The Ten Commandments can show you God's good way. The Ten Commandments can show you, uh, can, can, can tell you, don't murder. But the Ten Commandments can't wash away your sins once you've hated your brother, once you've murdered someone. The Ten Commandments can say, don't lie. That's not the right way. But can the Ten Commandments take away a record that is tainted and stained with lies? No. The law of Moses could always show that you are a sinner. The law of Moses could always show that you needed forgiveness. But the law of Moses could never ultimately remove those things from you. Here's the other thing. The law of Moses could, can tell you, don't, don't commit adultery. But the law of Moses could never change your heart so that you turn from one who is lusting to one who is free from lust and able to love rightly. But Jesus can do that. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus can change your heart? He can cleanse your record. He can, he can forgive you and he can change your heart so you actually are free to follow him. I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in others' lives. I've seen it in many of your lives. How you start to become a different person because of Jesus and the power of his resurrection, the power of an incorruptible life. Friends, why do we need to hear this? Because it is good news today. Now let me close with a warning because that's what Paul closes with. You'll notice that he quotes um, Habakkuk in verse 41. And he says in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should, be, uh, should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What is the warning here? The warning is don't miss the precious promise held forth to you today in Jesus. Don't miss what God is doing, what he has done in Christ. Don't walk away without embracing the Savior, without trusting in him. You know, if, if you're here today and you're, and you're thinking about Jesus, you're kind of skeptical, you're wondering, what, what, what's this all about? What are these people doing? I'm really glad you're here, and, and I'm excited. I want you to keep coming back and learning more about this. But I also want you to hear the word of Jesus, which says, look, all of this is available to you right now. And if you walk past it, if you walk away from it, You're still in your sins. You're still walking away with a burden on your back. You're still walking away 
without any way to have forgiveness from God, to be justified, to have a, a, a perfect and, and, and pure record from Christ Jesus. You're walking away without the power to change in your hearts, not just to, uh, to, to fix up your life, but to actually change your life from the inside out by the power of His Spirit. Don't walk away without trusting in this Savior and saying, I don't have it all figured out, but Jesus, I'm going to start here. Life on my own terms ends. Life submitting to your word begins. I need you. And this warning also comes to those of us who have for a long time been comfortably members of the church. Don't walk away, friends, without activating Christ's promises in your life. You know, we can spend huge portions of our life just taking for granted that the gospel has, has brought us promises and freedom and justification. But you know when you really start to delight in the gospel and, and, and live for it as if it's, it's, it's new mercies every single day? It's when you start to see that the gospel frees you right now from bickering with your spouse. That the gospel frees you right now from the lust of your heart. That the gospel frees you right now from your desire to live life on your own terms, in your own way. And it shows you, it, it opens the path to actually turning away from sin and towards righteousness in Christ. Don't walk away. Don't miss the precious promise held forth to you in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace to overwhelm us and to lead us, to give us peace. We pray that all of this would be done through the son of David who came and answered all the questions that we were asking throughout history. The chief of which, how can we be right with God? We thank you that you've sent forth a king, not just uh, to, to rule some temporal kingdom to go in the history books, but you sent forth a king to die for our sins and to rule over our hearts so that we can be finally free to live in, in your light. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.